0: howdy everyone this week's guest is aaron wren who authors the newsletter the masculinist i wanted to let you know quickly that that can be found in the show notes i highly recommend subscribing uh, for his once a month newsletter and without further ado meet aaron wren All right, welcome to another episode of Cannon Calls. Uh, I'm your host, Jake McAtee, and this week we have the opportunity to speak with Aaron Wren out of New York City. Aaron, thank you again so much for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I was just mentioning I'd love to kind of get to know you personally and then find out, uh, kind of give folks the experience of what it's like to uh, receive a masculine newsletter. Um, who are you?
1: Well, I am a, a writer on urban policy uh, in New York. i also a, a Christian, a uh, Presbyterian here, here in the city. Uh, I'm originally from rural southern Indiana. Uh, I, it, it's been said of me that I love cities like only someone from a town of 29 people can. Uh, from, from Indiana, uh, lived most of my adult life in Chicago, did a lot of work in the management consulting field, uh, particularly in the technology side of that. And I'm uh, married to my wife, Katie, and we have a two-year-old son.
0: Awesome. There's been several episodes of this podcast and even just with uh, uh, Canon Press Media that your name has been mentioned. Uh, C.R. Wiley was in town a few weeks ago, and he talked about how much uh, he enjoyed your work and was indebted to your work. Um, So you've kind of been this name. You you run a newsletter, and so it's sort of been this... uh, I feel like it's kind of been this underground. You may be the Christian dark web.
1: Uh, Yeah. Um, Yeah, I do run a monthly email newsletter called The Masculinist. Okay. Literally one email per month that is about the intersection of Christianity and masculinity. What I saw was um, that men in our society, one men in our society are increasingly failing today or certainly falling behind where they should be. We see this in the fact that, um, you know, about 60 percent of the people getting college degrees today uh, are women. And we're now down to 40 percent men. Um, you've seen tremendous rises in, um, dec- or excuse me, tremendous declines in prime working age labor force participation. We now have people who are in that 25 to 54 year old age group who aren't in school, aren't in training, aren't in a job who are proverbially sitting at home in mom's basement playing video games. Uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, opioid deaths. We're seeing very low family formation rates. Uh, and so there's been a lot of uh, of, of kind of negative trends uh, among men in America. Uh, at the same time, we see two kind of divergent responses to that. One, a lot of men are turning to essentially secular men's gurus or movements. Jordan Peterson is by far the biggest of those. His book, Twelve Rules for Life, I think it was sold over two million copies. I mean, it's incredible. This is a guy who's getting hundreds of thousands of views on two, three-hour lectures on Genesis. You know, he's right. in-depth lectures. It's crazy. Or you think about a guy like Joe Rogan, who does these like two and a half hour podcasts that are drawing seven-figure views. Uh, and on down the line, there's there's a ton of these people um, out there that are just drawing hordes. Of mostly young men. Now, some of them, like Peterson and Rogan, are are mostly fairly anodyne. And and yet, I think it's notable, virtually none of them are Christian. Uh, Virtually none of them are Christian. They are either atheists Hmm. or or, uh, New Age. Uh, There are a handful that are sort of explicitly neo pagans, although I'm not sure what they really believe there. Uh, And at the same time, the church has essentially failed to reach men, particularly single men. You know, there there are men who kind of go along with their wives to church once they have kids. Uh, But the church itself has a significant female skew uh, and has for a while. And, you know, when when Jordan Peterson is drawing, you know, hordes of these young men and and the church is drawing essentially nothing, uh, I thought that's a real problem. And especially when you you add to that the fact that many of the ministries that have targeted men and the people who have targeted men have essentially been flops. Uh, famously, Mark Driscoll's ministry blew up. Yep. We've also had a lot of talk about purity culture lately. Um, that wasn't explicitly a men's ministry, but um, uh, you, you know, has had a lot of men involved in it. It's talked to a lot of men. And then I just saw that the whoever the current CEO is of Promise Keepers has a book out. And I'm like, Promise Keepers still exists? I <laughs> mean, they, they used to sell out stadiums, and it just and they're like, what happened? And so the church has really failed to do it. And what I basically saw is that the church, unfortunately, had um, you know had the truth about Christ, which is the most important truth, but in many other respects, had a lot of things wrong. Um, and uh, and so I wanted to kind of inject myself in here, not to try to become a Christian Jordan Peterson or a Christian intellectual dark web, who, by the way, are other of these basically secular men's gurus, Dave Rubin and right. all these guys.
0: Ben Shapiro. Um,
1: you know, all of them are, um, uh, you know, drawing huge numbers of mostly men. Ben Shapiro is more of a political character. He, he uh, you know, at least is is a practicing Jew. Right so he's not he's not an atheist or a secular guy, uh, but still I mean, uh, it's fair to say he's not Christian, and drawing all these drawing all these massive numbers of people, and, and again, Christians are just not in the game. and so we had to get we had to get in the game. And that's sort of why I started it. I wanted to essentially create a uh, maybe it's a little bit of a think tank, maybe it's a little a little bit of an RD operation, but just really start laying out from a Christian perspective, the issues around masculinity uh, and um, uh, in, in the faith and in the, in the world and what's going on in the world, and try, try to speak into that and doing it from the genre of of cultural criticism, um, meaning I, I am not a pastor. Uh, I have not gone to seminary. I am not trying to set myself up as an authoritative Bible teacher, but I want to take on some of the – um, things that that these other guys are taking on that, frankly, they got right. They may have got their metaphysics wrong, and in some respects, they may have got their moral moral system wrong. In some cases, extremely wrong. Right. Some of these guys are actually not good people. But you know, you you look at you, you look at some guys like Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro. Hey, you know what? They they've got a number of things that are right. And what can we what can we learn about what's right? And what can we, you know, not just from them, but in general, and correct some of these negative kind of non-scriptural views that have infected the church. And so that is, I started it. And uh, thanks to, um, you know, people like you sharing the word, uh, it's grown significantly over the last three years I've been doing it.
0: Which is super encouraging. Um, and one of the things when I first subscribed that I noticed, um, and even in just your analysis uh, just now, that all of these evidences and fruits of masculinity gone wrong in our nation, um, you are taking on things going on, uh, masculinity in the church, and it's not that um, pastors or um, popular Christian male writers talking about masculinity have been silent about um, the subject, but um, you are taking on what they are actually talking about and why it's upside down or entirely wrong or entirely false. Um, so, Like men, popular men, such as Tim Keller, uh, John Piper, Eldridge, uh, Chandler, you know. So we've had teaching on masculinity. What, what happened that it's to this point? Um, what happened that what- you had to start The masculinist?
1: Well, you know, I'm not the first person to ever talk about you know the problem of church reaching men. Okay, <laughs> so I think one of the things I want to have is, is a a humility about what I am able to accomplish. Sure. And the reality is that, you know, the road is littered with the bodies of people who tried and failed. It's hmm. easy to make fun of of the promise keepers or Mark Driscoll, but the real question is, why am I going to be any different? And I think I need to be realistic that this is a high-risk endeavor and, you know, need to have some humility about what I'm doing. I don't want to be overly uh, arrogant and believing that I have all the answers. What I like to say is I'm on a quest, you know, for the truth, uh, along with hopefully other people that that are engaging in this. But the the church, the Christian church, has skewed female for quite a while, and there have been a number of books written about it. One of the most famous is – uh, a book called The Church Impotent by Leon Potles, okay. I believe is Catholic. Okay. Um, I'm not really sure exactly what his story is, but he he essentially locates the roots of um, this female skew in Christianity, you know, in the Middle Ages. He kind of traces it back to the Middle Ages, to bridal mysticism and a, a number of other things. And, um You know, I'm not an expert enough on the history to to really judge that part of it. Um, uh, But I do think it's interesting, as he points out, if you think about the stereotype, think about other religions besides Christianity and think about the first images that come into your mind. Right. If you think about think about Judaism, you think about men in Yarmulkes, or uh, you know maybe in in, in a more uh, hasidic garb ultra orthodox garb, and they're or they're praying
0: right,
1: or you think about islam, it's a group of men praying, or you think about you know the sikhs, and it's it's a it's a man in a, in his ceremonial turban, and it's just like the thing is what you you see the images of these other religions are highly masculine um you, you and they are Tremendously practiced, you, you know, by men, and in fact, men may even be the driving force of them. Whereas Christianity itself has been, um, it, it, you know, I'm not going to say there's no man. Obviously, you think about Christianity, maybe you think of Christ on the cross, for example, or you think of a picture of Jesus, but you think about like the average Christian. Um, it, you know, it's a little bit hard to think about what might come what might come to mind there. So there's, there's something a little bit unique about Christianity there. Hmm. Um, uh, but it, it, it goes back away and, uh, you know, Podols was one attempt. Um, another more contemporary attempt was, was, uh, a book by a guy named maybe David Morrow, why men hate going to church. Okay. Um, he wrote, and he sort of says that the church isn't reaching men because of essentially, he, he takes essentially a business school approach to it. He says, um, you know, these pastors sort of took a market segmentation analysis, and essentially, um, women became the customer of evangelicalism, the church, and therefore they serve their customer base. Hmm. And, you know, women consume most of Christian media, they, they're this and that. So essentially, like, um, it's, it's a sort of a marketing, it's sort of a marketing view, right? Who is our customer? And it sort of became, this is the market that we're targeting. But what I think is the a more compelling um, uh, take on it uh, comes from a source very few people have read. um, But it's a British academic named Callum Brown who wrote a book called The Death of Christian Britain. And I heard of him when I was reading Charles Taylor's The Secular Age because Charles Taylor kind of cited this guy very approvingly. And uh, what I find interesting, he did that even though kind of, Brown's take on secularization was a little different than um, Taylor, but Brown, effectively looking mostly in England, but these trends apply in the U.S. So that around 1800 there was a tremendous shift in the perception of Christianity uh, from as you know essentially piety being seen as primarily a male domain or a male mode or in a, 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 a masculine attribute to a more feminine attribute. And women came to be seen as naturally good, as guardians of essentially piety, and men came to be seen as essentially the greatest threat to that, to their families, to their home. And essentially the church, uh, you know, in, in his almost his own words, he says that the church's signature attribute was its demonization of men. Hmm. Often things like drinking or gambling or fighting. You can think about, for example, the temperance unit uh, uh, movement uh, that was very, very much on that. And so the church started to portray women as very naturally angelic and essentially men as the great victimizers of innocent women. And this probably relates to industrialization. The other thing that was happening at this time was industrialization. We were moving from a household mode of production right. to a factory mode of production, and that involved a complete transformation of the household sphere. In essence, the household was uh, – the process was begun of draining it of its um, you know, traditional functions. You know, In pre-industrial culture, the household was essentially a self-sufficient subsistence economy. Um, it, it, there wasn't a lot of trade with the world. Uh, you know, in the middle ages, for example, I've read that most people never even saw money their entire life, Wow. paid rent to your feudal Lord in crops and in labor. Right. And so now you're in a situation where the husband is no longer farming, right? The wife is no longer involved in food, clothing, and, and other aspects of the home. And instead, you know, the husband's at work in a factory and the wife is at home, essentially becoming a a homemaker. And um, uh, this this process, which really kind of got underway here in the 1830s, introduced uh, tremendous new vulnerabilities um, into the system. And essentially, women who had previously been in very productive roles, even if it was in the home, it was a very productive role. Um, virtually all of uh, in the early 1800s, virtually all the cloth that was manufactured in the United States was homespun, it was it was ma- manufactured at home. And now women are essentially had become dependent on men for uh, for their income, and therefore, if men really screwed up uh, and, uh, and they were often outside the home, and so they were, you know, able to get more trouble. This this really put put the woman in a very bad situation. And so you really see this. This also comes through in Tocqueville, by the way, when he talks about kind of, you know, the the guardian women as guardians of virtue. And so I think there are some understandable um, reasons for this related to that transition period into industrial society. Um, uh, But for whatever reason, it was probably really in the 1800s that there was this shift. And what you basically see is it carries on through to today. Uh, certainly in Protestant land that I'm familiar with. Essentially, men are to blame for everything. Men are perpetually, you know, one step away from falling into perdition. Um, men are ruthlessly berated by these pastors. Um, men as a, a, a gender are excoriated as a group. Um, whereas. You know, women are essentially given a complete and total pass uh, on everything. Now, just because that's happening doesn't mean that men are, are themselves perfect. Sure. Um, you know, there's a lot of legitimate thing for things for which men can be criticized, but we have a system that's totally out of whack and totally out of balance. And essentially, when you when you listen to what people like, um, you know, Mark Driscoll or or Matt Chandler or some of these guys would say about men, is like. Why would any man with even like a modicum of self-respect sit there and listen to this, To sit there and be berated by this, and uh, and and so essentially, you know, I think they sort of modeled themselves maybe in Driscoll a little bit on the drill sergeant. What they forgot is that the drill sergeant isn't just there to tear you down; he's also there to build you back up into something else. And that was kind of what was was I think lost. It became a very uh, it's very distinct. I mean, you just you just look. At any of these guys and how they talk about men, and it's it's very it's very little uh, that that's useful. And in fact, um, they also, to the extent that they do give practical advice to men, it's practically always uh, worthless. Right. Uh, they can be very good on on some biblical teachings, but they can be very bad on a lot of other things. And frankly, they they that's one of the reasons I, I always try to say, look, I'm a cultural commentator. I'm not a Bible teacher. Uh, I don't want to set myself up, you know, as an area where I'm, you know, I'm out of my lane a little bit. And I think to some extent, these pastors often speak in a genre of cultural commentary and never clearly delineate when when they're in one mode versus the other. And that's why how things like purity culture go wrong. I mean, the reality is the Bible doesn't say anything about dating. Right. So a lot of what's being said is really not you know, per se biblical or part of a historic Christian tradition. It's an attempt to apply Christian principles to modern culture, uh, but it sort of comes through in some way as as if it's authoritative. And sometimes it can be very good and sometimes it can be very bad. Uh, but when it when it goes when it goes bad, then it ends up discrediting the church. Right. As well. I think it's, that's one reason it's my, my last little bit here is that's one reason I wanted to speak as a lay person, because that way, you know, if I say, look, I'm a cultural commentator, I'm a lay person, and I tell you something, and it doesn't work, and it's wrong, you know, then it's very easy. It's like, oh, this guy screwed up, right? Right. Not right. not Jesus Christ screwed me over by putting me in this church where this guy just totally wrecked my life.
0: Right. I um i'm curious to know what you think so you mentioned promise keepers um you know i remember back when i was in youth group we were taken to uh a sold-out stadium to go s- to uh true love weights um which i think was one of the is the baldwins thing if uh one of the baldwins yeah. um what is it that um you mentioned whether it was uh uh, Jordan Peterson or Michael Foster was on recently and talked about Jocko Willink's influence. Um, these kind of guys who seem to be winning the day in a masculine, in the masculinity realm, what is it that those guys are getting right that the church hasn't been able to quite grasp yet? And if they attempted it, you know, you mentioned Mark Driscoll, they, they've kind of um, failed at that.
1: Yeah, well, one thing uh, that they have is just you get this sense of empathy that a guy like Peterson has. Hmm. He, obviously he's a therapist, right? He's a psychologist and he's actually a clinical practicing therapist, um, or at least was until he got super famous. Right. And so his ability to come across as someone who actually cares about you, right? Even when he's challenging you to be better is, um, I, I think can't be overstated. And, um you know i think there's a good there's a legitimate question i think a lot of people in the pews can ask if you're a man it's like you know is my pastor on my side right or is i mean not in the sense is just we'll take my side in dispute just that just that thing but like does this person really have you know my best interest at heart i think there's there's honestly there's like a you know, there's some open questions about that for, for some guys. Mm. You know, I would probably wonder that about some of the stuff that happened with Driscoll. Right. A second thing, a sec- So that's one thing uh, that they have. A second thing is that they are they are aspirational. Uh, they're aspirational, and that they they create a vision of masculinity that is very appealing to to men. Now, some of that. Um, is something that I would say is not necessarily uh, Christian or or even positive. So there's, there's an element of Nietzscheanism in a lot of these people, a lot of will to power. Hmm. You, the man, need to be strong. You need to be alpha. You need to impose your will upon the world. You need to be dominant. You need to stop worrying about all these other people that's what they've been telling you worry about other people your whole life you need to start worrying about yourself and your dreams and your plans and work harder and be more driven uh, but nevertheless they sort of say if there's a little bit of an implication it's like all these kind of self-help guys think yeah. about tony robbins for example you know you know awaken the giant within <laughs> it's just sort of a a sort of a positivity and it's sort of like a lot of these guys also give you the uh uh, the sense, the implicit sense, that hey, if you do what I do, you will become as successful as I am. Right. Um, and so, and so I think that's one thing they create an aspirational vision. And then the third thing is they just get some things right. They get just like things right that the church gets wrong. So the the one I always like to use is the classic example is the idea that the church gets wrong is the idea that the servant leader is. Uh, someone that is attractive to women. Women want to be with a servant leader. By a servant leader, um, they say that he's someone who is on fire for God, who is living a holy life, who is uh, very nice, conscientious, kind, honest, has personal integrity, uh, is is someone who, who likes to give, who likes to serve others. That if you're like this, if you embody this ideal, that's what women want to marry. And, um, you know, Matt Chandler explicitly said, you know, I, he he said, godliness is sexy to godly people. He literally says godliness is sexy. (laughs) You basically just, you can basically describe it that way. You know, Don Carson basically makes the same kinds of statements. Like, um, uh, I think he said something along the lines of kindness is the greatest aphrodisiac in marriage. Right. It's like, if you are this way your wife will want to have sex with you I mean frankly speaking a lot of these guys are basically prosperity gospel on, on that point right uh, and you know since since we're on your show I, I have to say you know Doug Wilson I some of his writings in the past you know have come across in that servant leader mode um, right. I think he's going to talk about you know women can sense the aroma of you know the godliness and leading well and so I think there's a baby boomer I always say there's a baby baby boomer Um, aspect of this. Right. Um, It's there. And um, the fact is, that's just totally, totally false. Right. Okay. I think what we basically conflate is different things. It's like, what is, what is true? Right. There's things that are true. Uh, There are things that are good. There are things that we would like to be true. Many other things. And um, I think that we a lot of this there's this assumption that somehow because being godly is is a good thing is an important it must be something that makes you attractive. When but in fact that's that's not the case. And so what I what I think they get they get right is that many of the attributes I'm not going to say I totally endorse the servant leader concept I don't, right. But many of the things that they say are in fact things that every man must develop and cultivating his life. Every man should be godly, should be kind, should be honest, should be conscientious. Many of those qualities are mandatory, not just for men, for all of us. But what they are, are things that make you a good candidate to marry. That's good. You, you, they don't make you attractive. It's like, I think as a man, you could instantly get this. It's like, what women do you find attractive? And then which of them Right, or, which women, in general, would be good candidates for marriage? Those are kind of two separate categories of things. And so, what are women um, attracted to in men? What makes you attractive to them? things like power and status, confidence and charisma, um, you know, good looks and style, uh, money. Um, I actually think I put money at the end deliberately. I don't think money is is that, but when you when you look at, um, you know, that uh, Donald Sterling and his, you know, (laughs) twenty one, you know, eighty seven year old Clippers guy with a twenty one year old Thai supermodel girlfriend, it's like you know, money maybe just has a little bit to do with that,
0: right?
1: There. But it's like the old. It's like uh, you know, there's an old John Cougar Mellencamp song about you better learn how to play guitar if you want to like date this, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, this girl in high school. It's like the whole thing. It's like yeah, become like the indie rocker, become the cool kid, and like when when we like. So I think secular culture is actually much more honest about that than a church choir, like, church culture. And Jordan Peterson says women are attracted to men who win status competitions with other men, <laughs> and hmm. like. He says that, which is true, <laughs> go over to, you know, Matt Chandler and he says godliness is sexy, which is not true. And yeah, I think maybe, you know, Chandler's just – he's not wrong to say you have to be godly. Right. right. You can be a man who uh, is very, very successful by all the measures of attractiveness that women will be very, very, very attracted to you. And yet you can be an evil person and someone that any Christian woman should say far, far away from. So this this there's just two categories of things. What makes you attractive and what makes you a good marriage prospect or a good husband, good father? And you need to work on both of those. Right. And, and the church only tells you to work on one set of attributes, not on the other set of attributes. And that's why a lot of these guys, what are they telling you? Get in the gym. Yeah. right? They're telling you be more confident. Um, they're telling you stop apologizing for yourself all the time. And they're just giving a lot of practical tips. And in fact, um, you know, some of these guys are, you know, again, not not the good guys, but a lot of guys just flat out pickup artists. I will show you how to simulate techniques that will make women be attracted to you, so you can have sex with them, basically, and. Uh, you know, the reality is a lot of those techniques work. There was an article in New York magazine about these two guys who were uh, pickup artists. Uh, they were, they're assuming they were coffee shop owners by day and pickup artists by night. And they had been running essentially a hipster coffee shop, but they were pickup artists. And they had um, been running a blog. They'd been running a blog you know, detailing their conquests and then somebody found out who they were and made the connection and, you know, you, know, you can imagine the firestorm that right. came out of that. They had had sex with something like 40-something women.
0: Wow.
1: So it must have worked for them. And so I think there's this, there's this aspect that they're giving you these techniques that are, you know, maybe often amoral uh, or, you know, immoral. And the Nietzschean view of life is not good, but they're telling you how to, to become more successful at things that are very primal to young men. And uh, and so I think that we, you know, as the church need to to take a step back and reflect what does godly attractiveness look like, right? right. And, and and things of that. And so that's that's what that's where I'd like to see us do a lot more, do a lot more on it.
0: Right. No, that's and
1: right. I think it's a little I think it's a little hard sometimes for pastors because if you look at the average pastor that I see, most of them married very young. Many of them got married, like in college or in seminary. They probably didn't date a whole lot of women. They certainly have no experience dating at older stages of life, like many people have today. The other thing is when you you start out in your career, maybe you're a youth pastor or you're a college ministry guy. And then you're like, you know, you're preaching, you're the pastor of a church. When you're like in those positions, you're in the highest status position in your ecosystem, if you will. So if you are the leader of the campus ministry, you're the leader. You're the number one staff guy. This is what Matt Chandler, he writes this book. Um, uh, it's called The Mingling of Souls, when he would talk about running a Bible study in college. And I, I don't know the whole story here, but it's kind of crazy. He apparently had a thousand people in a Bible study right. when he was a college student. And he would talk about how women would throw themselves at him and try to make – him think that they were exactly what they thought he wanted. It's like they were putting on a big show. They were changing themselves to try to conform to what he wanted, right? That's almost the opposite of the, uh, the servant leader, but he can't put two and two together on that. Right. Um, I will say he very, he very wisely um, did not initially let his now wife know that he was running this gigantic Bible study. <laughs> and so he, he, he wanted to make sure that she was interested in him for him, not just interested in him because he had this like, huge Bible study because he understood that if she knows I'm like standing up on front of a stage in front of massive numbers of people, it's going to generate attraction that may not be to who I am as a person. And so I think he knows it. He gets it. And you know he's elsewhere said you know you know attraction is a strange ambiguous force. So at some level they get it, but their their messaging is a little is a little off, I think. And it, but it needs to be it needs to be reflected on. Um, and, and and so I think a lot of times maybe um, they the these pastors believe that they're, you know women were attracted to them when they were young because they were they were um, uh, you know they were so godly. But in fact it may have just been because they were like in a you know a high status position.
0: That's really a, good. And situation. I think I think when you were you were even mentioning so like guys like Dia Carson or um, Chandler can say those things about godliness is sexy or kindness being an aphrodisi- aphrodisiac. Um, it does seem convenient to be able to like you were saying in their places of high status. I mean, you know, it, you know, I'd be curious to find a guy you know who's thirty visiting some singles group. You know, if it doesn't seem like all those guys have to live in reality is basically, I guess what I'm saying. So it does seem like they do get it. I wonder if they would just say those things are worldly, you know, that's not the Christian way, you know, regenerated Christians are not attracted to those kinds of things. Um, When maybe in fact, it's just that they're conflating um, what you are saying.
1: There's nothing wrong, um, you know, with being attracted to those things. Sure. Like, And, um, you know, is it better to have, you know, a husband that makes more money or less money, generally speaking, more money, right? The more, you know, the more that he's capable of doing, uh, generally the the better he can provide for his family. So there's not, you know, there's, you know, I don't think these things, these things are bad, but I think there's a vision of how things ought to be embedded in their, their view that essentially, um, essentially denies reality. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, can't fully explain
0: it. I'm curious to know you, we, you brought it up, um, as far as the purity culture stuff that's obviously come, uh, rolling back into the mainstream with, uh, all the events of Josh Harris. Um, when you see all of the talk about purity culture, whether it was like highly damaging, um, or it wasn't you know, the two sides of the, of that coin, what, what is your take on how purity culture was handled and what, um, what's going on today with it?
1: My, my knowledge of purity culture is somewhat limited. Um, I did not become a Christian until later in life. And so missed purity culture. Okay. Um, I did read, um, Joshua Harris's book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And, uh, uh, I actually wrote a masculinist, Masculist number seven, if you look at it online, talks a little bit about it. Uh, I think that the thing with Josh Harris is very sad. I think that right. um, he's being made a scapegoat totally. uh, for uh, a lot of things. He was 21 years old when he wrote I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And his parents were sort of Christian celebrities. And, you know, he. He talks about, in his documentary, there's this documentary about him that came out last year, I I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, where he's sort of reflecting on on it. And he talks about um, attending, I think it was a True Love Waits event in Washington, D.C. with like a quarter of a million people all putting their little purity pledges in the ground. And he attended that before he wrote I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Mm -hmm. So he was a product of the purity culture uh, as much as... The creator of it, and um you, you know, uh, so so what I what I would say is, you know, just looking at his book, uh, I I look at it and I say I'm very glad that nothing I wrote when I was 21 sold a million copies. Right. Right. Think about that. Hundred uh, percent. When you when you were pushed, and you can think about it this. You can read about all the you know tabloid stuff about a guy like Justin Bieber. Like here's a guy, right, that became famous when he was what 12 or 14. Right. And it's just like, there's something about becoming super famous very early in life before you have really matured. I mean, I don't know that I'd want to be famous now. (laughs) I mean, like, it's not I'm a little, you know, I I sort of am like two minds about like, you know, what I do in some extent, because it's like, it's just such a, it's nice, it makes you feel good, rush it, boost your status and all that. But it it also, uh, it also kind of messes with you. And, and I think that when, when you looked, when you started looking at it, I think there were a few things that came wrong out of out of I Kiss Dating Goodbye. One is what I said earlier, it conflated essentially life coaching with the Bible. Hmm. There's a tunneled life coaching in the book, and um it was not clearly delineated from the Bible. And right. so that and and so when the life coaching is wrong, you just you discredit a little bit Christianity. The second, um is you know other people have criticized this uh, this prosperity gospel aspect of um, of it in that there's this it's almost this soulmate fall- fallacy you know right God this um, has this you know person picked out for me for you from beyond time right if you just wait and and are sexually pure will magically appear and uh, and you'll have a great amazing marriage which. Didn't always happen. A lot of people didn't have great marriage marriages when they got married. They had terrible marriages. Um, And uh, some people also didn't find anyone. I mean, the third thing I would say is that it's sort of this idea that if you did not stay totally sexually pure, if you did end up having sex or doing even who knows what else might have counted that, you were essentially damaged goods and it was all over for you. Right. You've permanently ruined yourself.
0: Right.
1: So I think those were a couple of things that went wrong. There is no prosperity gospel. One, I mean, again, we have to really avoid conflating life advice with scripture. Number two, um, we, we have to be very clear that not only is there no soulmate fallacy, but actually finding a spouse today, if your guy listening, finding a wife. And then building a successful marriage is a degree of difficulty, high endeavor. And we need to bring the same focus, intentionality, and effort to that, that we do to getting into the right college, to getting into the right career. I'm always struck. We, we spend unbelievable years and years and years making plans and taking actions and building our resume and doing things to achieve dreams. Around the city we want to live in, the college we want to go to, the job we want to have, the lifestyle we want to have, and then we sort of just even today, so like, well, you know, it'll just happen. There's this idea that it'll just happen to get married. It requires phenomenal intentionality and a lot of hard work and delayed gratification. And I do think this idea of of around around essentially, if you've had sex or you've watched porn or you've done all those things, there has to be the possibility. Um, of kind of redemption for you, which uh, I think we shouldn't we shouldn't take that too far and suggest that there are no consequences to uh, sexual sin. Uh, the Institute for Family Studies, which publishes academic research, yeah, uh, put out a chart that basically showed that, frankly, your the number of sex partners you have over your lifetime affects your likelihood of getting divorced. Wow, and you know if you even go with like sex partner two sex partner kind of two uh, for, for women, they have a significantly elevated divorce risk hmm. over someone who um, only ever had sex with their with their spouse. And um, again, the correlations not causation. We could say a lot of things here. But you know we shouldn't be naive and suggest that ultimately there there's no um, there will never be any consequences. But I think over and over we see you know with every form of sin. Think about alcoholism. Think about the people who follow the alcoholism or drugs, many of them for years, um, and yet were able to come out of that and and rebuild their lives. And I knew you know I knew a guy. I've known people who were. Uh, 20 year drug addicts. I knew a guy, my old church in Chicago. He spent 25 years in prison being an accessory to murder. You know, today he's he's married, Christian, like living a different life. So the possibility is always there. Right. Uh, the idea the idea. So I don't want to suggest that we take a blase attitude towards watching porn or whatever. We should not take a blase attitude towards watching porn, but we should also recognize that. Um. You know, it's like, oh, one mistake, and your life is over. right. Um, you know sometimes sometimes that does happen to people. But I think that we shouldn't assume that is as the rule for everyone,
0: right. I'm curious to know if you think, is there anything that's um as everybody is uh, piling on the the purity culture thing, is anything happening in the vacuum of that as far as like, um I know that the meeting of marriage came out maybe in the last decade and mingling of you've mentioned mingling of souls. Is there anything like what, what is the current field as far as these topics go? Um, I know you've been doing the masculinist for you're on, well, you're on the 35th one. So um, do you see a turn in, in, in the topic or uh, do you think this will be a while?
1: Well, what I would say is purity culture is emblematic of the fact that there is a, a, Culture of zero accountability Hmm. inside, essentially, the church, and I think we saw this most tragically in the Catholic Church with Hmm. their abuse scandals, where they still don't get it. Right? Right. It's like it's like mind-boggling to me, and so um, I think the the issue is not that I want people to fall on their swords. (laughs) <laughs> or, you know, right. you, you know be, be uh, you know, you know, you know, voted off the island or something. Right. You know, I don't, I think, I feel like, again, trying to make, you know, Joshua Harris the scapegoat. But I think we ought to really have, and that's what I say, come back to the beginning. I look at the, 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 the road around church and men is littered with like fail, failures. Sure. And so what we have to do is we have to be honest and admit where we failed. And say what went wrong, how did it go wrong, and how can we avoid making that happen again? That doesn't happen. Um, things kind of go away. Nobody talks about them anymore. Uh, many of the people involved with them, like you know, M- Martin Driscoll, has essentially been airbrushed out of the Politburo photo, as I like to say. <laughs> uh, of a lot of people who 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 were previously kind of like big backers of him, and so there's there's no that. And I think what we're going to see. There are going to be many, many likely future blowups, hmm. uh, e- even in this space. You know, I'm an urban guy. My writing is on cities. I love cities. And um, all the stuff that's said about about cities is absolutely true. Uh, but I also see here in New York all these kind of like church plants, and I see massive numbers of single people, overwhelmingly single Christian population. And I just see so many people, uh, mostly women, but not all women, who are like now when they're you know forty plus, never got married, desperately wanted to have kids, you know, wanted to be married. Hmm. You know, some of them have written very heart rending, you know, essays about it and like how it didn't work out. And I'm like, you know, at what point does this become the next blow up and people start asking like. You know, some of these some of these women start saying, like the people who read you know Joshua Harris's book, hey, was my pastor really giving me the best advice by essentially encouraging me to stay in a place where, you know, like New York City, where the dating waters are famously toxic and shark-infested, right? I mean, how many TV shows? Sex in the city, girl, how many shows have been made right. about? Yeah, you know, dating in New York or in DC or in San Francisco or in Seattle or in these places, and um, and and uh, so I think there's going to be I think you know, I think there's plenty of opportunities for more things to be, um, uh, more problems. And again, I I always say this that the, that the first person I did be worried about that is myself, right? right. And so I, at least I'm trying to position myself so that you know if if there is like a blow up in what I do, right, if it's like Paul said, let any man who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The fact is, you know, I could suffer a catastrophic moral failure. I'm not immune to that, but I you want know, to try to like isolate it. But I also want to just study about what am I getting wrong and what could I be getting wrong? And am I too much of the zeitgeist, you know, myself hmm. drawing on, you know, Jordan Peterson or different, you know, stud different trends? And when those trends are gone and now everything's different, we're going to look back and say, oh, my gosh, what did we do? And so I think, uh, you know, there's there's this point of we have to start with it taking kind of, taking responsibility for ourselves. And so that's what I want to do. And I hope that, you know, where I'm wrong, I want to um, be able to kind of acknowledge and correct that as soon as I can. So I certainly welcome – I say I always welcome people who want to push back right. uh, on what I'm saying because I, I feel like it's important to have – it's important to have like, you know, different views out there and to be be responsive to them.
0: That's really good. Aaron Wren, thank you again so much for coming on. I've appreciated uh, your work, uh, had the benefit of meeting you earlier last year. Um, just as somebody who's grown up, uh, you know, I grew up in the non-denominational world. We went to those, you know, like I mentioned, we went to Baldwin's uh, True Love Waits at some point. And I've read many of the books that, you know, you um, talk about in the masculinist. And, you know, when I read them, it just was water off the duck's back, you know, nothing, uh, didn't strike me as weird or strange or anything like that. So, I'm um, uh, I appreciate your humbleness and I'm, I'm very grateful for the work that you do.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.